Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Coach the Coach Radio. Brought to you by the Business Radio X Ambassador Program, the no-cost business development strategy for coaches who want to spend more time serving local business clients and less time selling them. Go to brxambassador.com to learn more. Now, here's your host. Lee Cantor here, another episode of Coach the Coach Radio, and this is going to be a fun one. Today on the show, we have Chris Neeland with Cult Collective. Welcome, Chris. Hey, thanks, Lee. Great to be here. Well, I'm excited to learn what you're up to. Tell us a little bit about Cult Collective. How are you serving folks? We're, we're what we refer to as an audience engagement firm. That's a uh, sort of a hybrid if an ad agency and a business consultant had a baby, uh, we, we, meaning we do business advisory services, but all within the construct of the customer experience. So we don't get into things like supply chain management or M&A work or things like that. We really try to look at creating customers who can uh, not only buy more product more often, but be converted into cult-like followers. And uh, cult-like adoration or raving fans is sort of the pinnacle of, uh, of audience engagement. And uh, we're fascinated by businesses that have sort of transcended that category and have spent a lot of time trying to reverse engineer what they do, how they do it, uh, so that everybody else can, can copy it. Now, is that something that can be reverse engineered for any company? Is any company kind of cult-worthy? I don't think every company is cult worthy. The two biggest disqualifiers is an uninspired C-suite. So businesses that are just content with some form of financial performance uh, don't make good candidates because cult brands aspire to not only be successful, but they want to be significant in some way. It could be culturally significant like Converse or Vans, or it could be uh, socially significant, like say a Patagonia that's trying to you know, save the planet. So if you have a purpose beyond profit, that makes you cult eligible. And then there's certainly some categories that are just so commoditized. Home utilities comes to mind um, where it's like, I don't want to think about it. I have no affinity for it. Uh, I don't know, don't care. Maybe business copy machine salesmen, they may have a hard time, you know, trying to create some noble purpose behind their business. But I, the, 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 the flip side, Lee, is that many businesses have sold themselves short. We, our problem is not finding businesses that want to be cult-like that can't be. Our businesses, our problem is finding businesses that should be more cult-like but aren't. So you think that this could be a limiting belief for some organizations that they just think, hey, we're an accounting firm, so they all look alike. They have different names on the door, but um, we're not kind of eligible for being a cult when you're saying that maybe they are. Yeah, I mean, take lots of different industries, nonprofits, colleges, uh, healthcare, B2B, even accounting services. Yeah, I, I, it is rare that we would run into somebody that's trying to find a I mean, really, at the end of the day, it comes down to how are you overcoming commoditization? How are you choosing to compete beyond price or convenience? And so if you have a C-suite that says we don't want to win on price or convenience, we must compete differently. Uh, I think we're going to have a 90 plus percent success rate finding a way to let them use some principles from cult brands. So so mindset is at the heart of this. If this if leadership doesn't have the right mindset that it's going to be difficult, but if they have the right set then it's possible. 
Yeah, because then it gets into both courage and creativity, right? If you have the ambition, then you're going to maybe have the courage to try something scary. And by scary, I mean doing something that maybe you nor your competitors have ever done before. Uh, And then also just creative. I just think that there's too many businesses that have settled into mediocrity that is just failing to display appropriate levels of creativity to solve problems uh, by applying different sorts of models or uh, benchmarks. Now, is it something that only kind of the largest uh, organizations can take part in? Or is this something that if you're a scrappy startup that you can say, you know what, instead of going the traditional marketing, I'm buying AdWords and Facebook, I want to kind of lean into this cult branding uh, initiative, is that something I can do or is it something only for the big boys? I think the newer your business and the smaller your business, the bigger advantage you have for two reasons. One, the bigger you get, the more bad habits you start to embrace, the more you stop playing offense and start playing defense. You stop trying to, to challenge and you start trying to protect. So big is usually bad, not good. As well as, you know, a, a lot of these cult brand principles don't require big investments in things like paid media. Um, you know, so it, it, it's, it's if you don't have a lot of money, you should be even more open minded to cult brand you know, marketing because the, the answer is not ever going to be buy a Super Bowl commercial or, or you know, maybe even not even not even doing some paid media at all. Cult brands, some, some of our favorite cult brands that we run across, Lululemon, uh, um, Spanx, Costco, you know, they're not they don't do any advertising. And so uh, I, if I'm a small business owner that's trying to count my pennies, I'm thinking, well, why wouldn't I do that if I don't have to then spend a bunch of money to Google? or to some media publisher. So now what are some ways, we have a lot of coaches that listen to this show. Um, What are some ways like a a business coach where that could be a commodity uh, type business can kind of create that cult brand around themselves? Is there any low hanging fruit that they could be doing today? Well, yeah. I mean, the first thing we like to do if we talk to somebody that's been doing it for a while is to assess their activities and and question why are they doing anything that they were doing five years ago. So, you know, like I mentioned, one of the biggest challenges is legacy thinking and bad habits. And the world has changed so drastically, not just with the pandemic, but with options around how consumers are making buying decisions that, um, you know, 10 years ago, Harvard and McKinsey partnered up and completely obliterated all of the paradigms around the purchase funnel. And yet we still talk to B2B professionals that are talking about this funnel metaphor about like filling the top of the funnel. And it's like, guys, the world has moved on from that a decade ago. And so if that's still your guiding framework, that's low hanging fruit to just rethink differently about um, you know, lead generation and, and conversion. Obviously, there's been macro shifts away from paid media into content marketing and inbound uh, marketing marketing and then you know something that doesn't even exist on the purchase funnel that is so critical for today's uh, brand leaders and marketers is post purchase you know the purchase funnel ends with getting someone who purchases and and we would argue at least 25% of your marketing efforts should be spent on people who have already bought to not only get them to rebuy but so that they become a non-commissioned sales force and start uh, referring your business uh, business to you so now um what's been your most 
maybe favorite, I I don't want to say the most successful because that's probably in the eye of the beholder, but for you, a personal favorite of a brand that you work with that was struggling and maybe uh, you took them to a new level and maybe they exceeded their expectations. Um, well, and it is true. It's interesting you mentioned the brands that are struggling. Unfortunately, most people that call us are businesses that are sort of in cardiac arrest. Uh, maybe a new C-suite has come in, the board kind of cleared house, and they they, they need to make drastic measures. Um, I, but that's not always the case. I mean, some of our favorite engagements, I'll share one with Home Depot. I mean, Home Depot was not in trouble. Home Depot was a, you know, over $100 billion in sales, but Home Depot wasn't content to rest on their laurels. And Home Depot was looking in their crystal ball and realizing that what was shifting in consumer behavior was a do it for me mentality. So Home Depot was built in the late 80s, early 90s on this idea of a do it yourselfer. And this, you know, that classic campaign, if you can do it, we can help. And all of their money came from selling products through their stores or their website. But what they saw with the rise of Angie's List and Thumbtack and Pro Referral was, was this idea of, uh, I just want somebody to do it for me. I don't want to paint my house or mow my lawn or build my fence. I'm looking for a contractor. So they used us to help them birth and, and um, uh, really exploit this idea of home services. And they didn't want to use the same playbook. They didn't want to create brand confusion. They didn't want to use the same ad agencies. They didn't want to use the same reliance upon uh, flyers and discounting and promotions. They wanted to create a new entity that could be almost like a standalone business, Home Depot Home Services, but certainly leveraging the brand equity, uh, the the strengths of the Home Depot brand. So we we worked with them for many years to try to turn that into a multi-billion dollar company. And it not only had elements of consumer understanding and appeal, but also we had to attract suppliers. We had to get professional, you know, roofers, window installers, painters, landscapers to come and join that Home Depot network. And so, um, Colt brand principles, I think, was a much more effective way for them to get, you know, from, from zero to, to billions faster than if they had done more of a traditional approach. Uh, can you share a story like that, but maybe with a smaller entity rather than somebody who, uh, like I'm hearing you say that it can work for anybody, but when you have a pocketbook the size of Home Depot, you can take certain risks, even though culturally or politically it's more difficult. But is there an example from a smaller company that you can share that there were some tactics or some principles that helped them kind of grow? Yeah. So uh, I could think of a company that's in Alberta, Canada called F12. They're in the B2B um, tech support kind of managed IT solutions business. So if you're a dental office or an auto mechanic shop and you don't want to deal with your IT issues, you can outsource your infrastructure to F12 and they'll hook your team up with laptops and they'll, they'll make sure that uh, everything's working and that the right software is downloaded and that you're protected from malware or whatnot, right? So they had about 40 employees uh, when they called upon us and it was, it was the CEO's desire to stand for something more than what they call the break fix model. They didn't just want to be known for when, you know, when your computer crashes, call us. They really wanted to be in the business of helping entrepreneurs grow big businesses. They wanted to be a partner and they wanted to take away all of the headache and and hassle that, 
you know, most people that start companies don't have a clue about what their IT or network or server, you know, infrastructure should be. And so it's kind of this necessary evil. And it's a huge cost and a huge risk for many businesses. They just undervalue and underappreciate that. So we work with F12, again, leveraging these cult brand principles to create uh, extreme differentiation of why you would choose to work with F12 than just going through, you know, any other sort of a tech support provider that they might find, you know, on, on Google if they were looking for a vendor. And it got into solutions that not only made them more obviously desired, you know, distinct and different, but also it had huge implications on the people that they attracted. So they attracted a better caliber of employee. They attracted a better caliber of, a, of tech support agent. Uh, and so they had huge cultural benefits as well, which, uh, uh, was this wonderful sort of um, secondary side effect besides just creating more um, you know revenue and market share. So what are some of the tactics that are used to help that business person kind of convert more of their customers into this, like you said, raving fan? So a lot of it was, you know, again, if you were to hire an ad agency, you're going to find people that would start to find way, better ways to communicate, you know, maybe they would do something funny or clever or emotional to create some sort of resonance. But when you're using a cult brand playbook, you're getting into the value proposition itself. So we actually created products and subscription services and price points that were far more attractive and empathetic to specific types of audiences. That was another big part of, you know, cult brands don't try to be all things to all people. They get very, very clear on who what we call their predominant and opportunity audiences are. So they get more narrow. They, they, they elevate their positioning. They become less of a generalist and they become more of a specialist to a very discreet group of people. Uh, and, then, and then what they're selling is something that's thought, is a lot more thoughtful. And very, very rarely, I remember we did a project with Harley Davidson back in the day. Now, now we're back to big companies, but Harley needed to attract a younger audience and they're not going to do that through an ad campaign. They can certainly buy media on channels that young people watch. But what Harley needed was a bike that was under $10,000. No, no young person's going to go buy a cruiser for $35,000. And so cult brands think about their solutions, their offerings, their product mix in ways that non-cult brands just think about, well, this is what I've got. Let's keep coming up with you know, communications strategies to make it seem better. Versus we don't know, let's actually go make something that's, that's, that is better for the market. So you mentioned the importance of kind of leaning into uh, specialization and to really attract the folks that kind of resonate with your message. At some point, though, don't you have to communicate whatever that is to these people? Like, how do you kind of get in front of those people to let them know that this offering even exists? Yeah, of course, you have to make sure that you have a a compelling storefront or a compelling website or a compelling sales force or a compelling, uh, you know, a, a marketing or advertising campaign. Uh, I think what we're disappointed by though, is simply the, the balance of that because, you know, nobody, I, I didn't get onto TikTok because I saw an ad for TikTok. I got onto TikTok because everybody in my circle started sharing videos with me about this crazy new thing called TikTok. That's frequently how I find out about new restaurants in town or new movies to go watch or on, on some streaming service. So I think that we've underestimated the power of word of mouth. It has always been and will always be the most persuasive form of business. So if we work with a brand new company, we'll talk about what are you doing for the first hundred customers 
that would be completely unsustainable and unscalable. But I need each of those 100 customers to be more than customers. I need them to become evangelists for what I'm doing. So I'm going to overinvest in that experience. You know, I'll give you an example with Traeger Grills. Traeger Grills is a is a small, and when I say small, I mean, they're a couple hundred million now, but, you know, they used to be $25, $30 million, and they were for sort of the extreme barbecue enthusiast that wanted to smoke meat instead of grill it. And, uh, you know, one of the missed opportunities that they stole from Apple, one of the world's best cult brands, is that when you get your iPhone, it feels like Christmas morning. The packaging is done right. The phone is already charged and ready to go. Uh, the onboarding app in terms of you know how it welcomes you and downloads all your stuff from the cloud. It just makes it seem so easy. Somebody was so thoughtful. Tesla's the same way. So Traeger took the box that the grill showed up in and completely reimagined the way that the grill is assembled. And how you actually would invite friends over, you know, there's cup holders for beer cans in the styrofoam of the box so that you're having a little assembly party. And then when you're done, you undo the box, you flip it inside out, and it's a log cabin playhouse for your children. And the number of people that will then take a photo of the box and say, look at this cool thing that Traeger did when I unload my thing. It, that's what creates social conversation and the, and the, the, the sort of what we call becoming remarkable. Being remarkable doesn't mean you're exceptional. Being remarkable get, means that you're giving people things to remark about and not enough businesses are sitting down thinking about the entirety of their buying cycle to say, what would I expect somebody to say as a result of having visited my website, talk with my sales, my, my, you know, come, come into my store. It's just all too ordinary. And so therefore people don't say anything, but if you can make it extraordinary, then all of a sudden you're part of the conversation. So now when you're working with a new client, what does that initial conversations look like? Is there some sort of an assessment to see where they're at, where the opportunities lie? Do you, like how deeply do you have to really yep. kind of immerse yourself in order to find that hidden gold that might be right there? So we, we, we've identified eight areas that cult brands exceed their mediocre peers in. So yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's a bit of an audit of how well are you living up to each of those eight areas. And we just plot your sort of current state and the desired state. Desired could be either the ambition of the C-suite or desired could be benchmarked from what the best competitor in the category is doing. We're looking at that right now for oil changes as an example. There's just a huge missed opportunity for how pedestrian, how boring, how inconvenient, how unexciting going to get your oil change could be. So the bar is so low that if you had a C-suite that said, I no longer want to compete instead of being 49, we're going to be 39, which is what everybody is doing. They're, they're bombarding the marketplace with coupons to just become a cheaper oil change versus what if you could actually become a better oil change? What could, what the, what could the consumer be doing in the 20 minutes while they're waiting for their car to be, uh, you know, uh, to, to have the oil changed on it? Uh, how, how might the appointment scheduling be handled? What might be happening after they leave now that you know some information about that car uh, and about that consumer? And so there's just, I think at the end of the day, it's just thoughtfulness about some very specific areas. You don't have to think about everything. We've kind of whittled it down to eight. And then with that, then you just create a prioritized list. Which ones are we going to tackle first? Now, is there things that over time that you've learned, like this is kind of the biggest bang for your buck? This is kind of where 
a lot of the opportunity is for folks like missed opportunity that they have it right there. They just have to do more of it. It sounds like some of it is around those kind of early people who are your clients that just lean into that and really understand um, what they like about you and then how to kind of just wring more juice out of that. Yeah, I think probably the biggest missed opportunity is around the customer experience. We do a lot with healthcare and, you know, just everything about, particularly in the states, but also in Canada. The difference is it's equally bad, but in the states you're paying more obviously through it. Versus in Canada, it's more of a social service. But you know, the waiting room experience absolutely sucks. The uh, the ambiguity around um, who you're seeing, uh, the, the the credentials of the practitioner, the the course of treatment or action afterwards, the access to a community of people that are suffering from the same thing that might have the same concerns. Like the, the healthcare experience should not feel like the DMV experience, right? And yet uh, it oftentimes does. And so if you're trying to become a healthcare institution, like the Mayo Clinic, for example, that's going to stand out above the rest where, you know, people will fly across the country and pay premium dollar to access the Mayo Clinic. They've built that brand uh, partially, certainly through the expertise of the things that they're, that they specialize in but also just the, the, the thoughtfulness of the customer experience soup to nuts. And so, you know, yeah, if I was to say the easiest place to start is not to assume that what you're selling is good and you just need a better way to communicate it, assume that what you're selling could be radically enhanced uh, so that you can actually create uh, greater demand. And if you do it well enough, you know, the, the founder of Geek Squad, another tech support company that we worked with years ago, said that, you know, advertising is a tax that brands pay for being unremarkable. You're going to pay the money either way. It's not about cost savings. It's about, are you going to pay the money in a bunch of paid media? Or are you going to pay the money into putting something into the experience that makes it memorable and buzzworthy? So now um, when you're working with your clients, do you have the uh, the niche? You, you mentioned that anybody or a lot of companies that don't think they're eligible are eligible to be a cult if they kind of lean into this and open their mind to the opportunity there that's right in front of them, do you have a sweet spot in terms of the types of clients you have? Like, are they enterprise level only at this stage of your growth or are you working with uh, companies of all sizes? You know, our sweet spot is sort of the 50 to 400 million range. You know, the, the early stage, I think we can certainly add value, but what you're doing is giving them ideas that they'll need to execute as their business grows. And then as I mentioned, kind of once you're over 500 million, maybe a billion, um, we're kind of uninspired by you. I see a lot of people take their foot off their gas at that point, and they're just trying to maintain. But if you're like a Yeti, as an example, that, you know, kind of came out of nowhere and comes out with this $400 cooler where the next option was a $50 Coleman from Walmart. It's like, where is it? What's this all about? And how did this happen? And then they just kind of become this iconic brand for the outdoor enthusiast that, that we work really well with businesses that have achieved a level of market fit. Uh, and now they're trying to say, how do you scale this? How do you take it and make sure that we don't ruin what we've got? Because uh, we're, we seem to be, you know, having something very special here. And then uh, on your website, you have, uh, there's opportunities for the smaller brands to get those ideas. You have ways for a smaller brand to learn uh, about what you got as well, right? Yeah, we've, we, you know, lots of things. I mean, we're doing our best to keep, not keep this a secret. So we've written a book 
Uh, we host an event every year called The Gathering, where we put these iconic cult brands on stages and let people understand how they started and what what bold things do they do. Uh, we do classes every month. Uh, for 200 bucks, you can come and participate in a workshop to understand how the cult brand principles uh, could be applied. I go on every podcast and radio show like yours, Lee, that I can. Like, um, you know, the, the goal here is not to keep this uh, close to our vest. The goal is to get people from uh, to a be curious uh, about is there a better way, and then b to start practicing, testing, applying. You know, you don't have to go all in. You can take uh, some product line, some region, some new you know new division, and experiment with it in a really safe way. And if somebody wants to learn learn more, what's the website? Uh, it's cultideas.com. <laughs> well, Chris, thank you so much for sharing your story today. You're doing important work, and we appreciate you. Yeah, thanks, Lee. Appreciate the, the time with you. All right, this is Lee Cantor. We will see you all next time on Coach the Coach Radio. Yeah. 